0: Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, and it's 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than the men. It's the word of God.
1: Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, good morning. So many of you, it's so good to see you here. Even the balcony is a little bit crowded up there, so... That is neat. Uh, don't you love this time of year uh, with the songs that we sing and the decorations and all of the things going on? Uh, it's really exciting for me personally. And so I'm, I'm grateful uh, and glad to be here. Uh, for the entire fall, we have been studying the book of Proverbs together and talking about wisdom. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And for the four Sundays of Advent we're going to continue the theme of wisdom, but looking at it through the lens of Christmas. Okay? Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul does in the beginning chapters of First Corinthians. In the passage that Vicky just read, Paul uses the word wisdom or wise 11 times, if my math is correct. Okay? He uses the word foolish or folly five times. So this is a passage about wisdom. However, we learn something very unique about wisdom from these verses in 1 Corinthians. And that, for me, really helps round out all that we have talked about in our Proverbs series, okay? And it is this, that the wisdom of God is subversive, that there's an upside-downness about it, that at first glance, it looks like foolishness. And that is because the wisdom of the world is wisdom without Christmas, wisdom without the cross. And the wisdom of God is, Is wisdom through the lens of Christmas or a view of reality that has the cross at the center and is to the eyes of the world, at least in appearance, foolishness? Because it is so upside down. Because it is so subversive. Because it is so ironic. So contrary to the establishment. So to the world, the cross looks like weakness and defeat when in reality it is strength and victory. Right? And so for the four weeks during Advent, we're going to look at the upside-downness of God's wisdom beginning this morning with the wisdom of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Fools. We're going to see three things from this passage. If you would follow along with me in the outline I provided for you on the back of the page where we just read from. These three things I want us to see and reflect together on, number one, our need of him. Uh, Number two, his work for us. And then, number three, our response to him or to his work. So, first, our need of him. Secondly, his work for us. And then, thirdly, our response as we, during this Advent season, head towards Christmas. Okay, let's begin. First, our need of him. And I want you to see how Paul paints this contrast um, in these verses between what he calls the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. So, let's begin by describing what Paul means by the wisdom of the world, okay? You see that in verse 20? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, that word wisdom, we've talked about this for many months now, means being in touch with reality. It is a, it is a particular view of reality. It's knowing how things are, knowing how things work, And being able to problem solve towards solutions. The word world is the Greek word cosmos. Which refers to human community in rebellion against God. Which you see in Psalm 2. Which Jonathan's described by his reading in his prayers. The raging and the plotting of the nations. Taking war counsel together against the Lord. Bracing for battle against God. That's what the Bible means by the world. So put the two together. The wisdom, this view of reality of the world, organized, you know, rebellion, human community organized in rebellion against God. And you get, uh, you get this idea of what Paul means by the wisdom of this world. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor around uh, the, the well, in the early 20th century, he said the wisdom of this world is a mentality, an outlook a view of life without God. God is shut right out. It is man himself viewing and organizing and controlling life. That's what the phrase means. Now, when God created the first man and the first woman, he created them to know only independence upon him and his revelation. And if, so if you're not a Christian or if you're new to Christianity and the Bible, here's the story. In the very beginning, God created a man and a woman and he put them in a garden And there was a tree in the garden that represented God's comprehensive knowledge of the universe. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, were not allowed to eat from this tree. In other words, there was a knowledge that was kept from them and reserved for God alone. And here's what that means. It means that we all, every one of us in this room, we all are created to need God to know how things work. And how things are. And how to problem solve towards solutions. No matter who you are. Or where you come from. This is true. For you. You need to know. Excuse me. You need God to know how life works. And you hate that. I know that because I do. See. See. Sinful humanity hates that they need the Lord. And that fierce independence and desire for control is what the Bible refers to when it talks about sin. Sin is wanting to be at the control panel of the universe. Sin is the desire to be God. Not to be dependent upon Him, to be like Him, to be exalted as the Most High. And in Genesis chapter 3, we are told what the allure of the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil was for Eve. She saw that the fruit, quote, was to be desired to make one wise. And so in the pride of her heart, Eve wanted to know apart from God. She wanted to decide for herself what was good and what was evil. And it is, it is this sinful impulse, this desire to set values to things according to a false view of reality that Paul refers to as the wisdom of the world. And because it is out of touch with reality, it is in truth foolishness. But here's the danger. You ready? You see, the collective value system of human community creates practices and priorities, again, based on a false view of reality, that form a particular way of life. It also creates social and political institutions to support and encourage this way of life. So, in Ephesians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians about their life prior to their coming to faith in Jesus Christ, here's what he says. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And it's that phrase, the course of this world, right? Now, if you've ever run a race, you know what a course is. Right, you know, when you run a race, how do you know where to go? I mean, if you're like me, this is no problem, right? If you're like me and you tend to be towards the back of the pack, the strategy is just follow everybody else, right? Not a big deal. But if you're in the front, right, if you're one of these people that runs sub, you know, five-minute miles, you know, then, then how, do you know, how do you know where to go? You follow the course, and the course is usually some line of some type that shows you which direction to go and where to turn etc uh, and, and so what Paul is saying is this, is this is how it works this is how it works in the world this is how it works with our, our relationship to the culture that we're a part of the world according to the Bible is a spiritual power and we are all born under its spiritual influence and so we are tempted to adopt the wisdom of the world and to follow the course of the world and it Butts up against, okay? There are all these scriptural warnings that we have to make sense of as we, as we think about Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12. Right? Do not love the world, John says in, in 1 John chapter 2. Friendship with the world, says James, is enmity with God. And so all of these scriptural warnings telling us and, and helping us see that the world is a spiritual power trying to sell us wisdom in a way of life that is based upon false views of reality because it's built upon human pride and selfishness. If you need a picture of what that looks like, look no further than the Corinthians. Because you see, in the ancient world, Corinth was notorious for its size and its wealth and its immorality. The Christians were successful people. They were powerful people. They were talented people all conglomerated together in this city called Corinth. And the modern-day equivalent would be New York City or London or Shanghai or some urban setting like that. Paul, the apostle, planted a church there, and he's writing this letter to the church he planted because he's concerned. You see, living in this city, surrounded by all these successful, popular, rich wealthy, talented people, the church has become enculturated. That is, the Christians there in Corinth had become a perfect reflection of the cultural values and norms around them instead of modeling a different way. Instead of modeling a different wisdom. Two predominant values in particular that you can see Paul, Paul helping them identify in their midst. Look at verse 22. He says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. so the Jews demand signs that is that word means dis- a display of power it 's god 's miraculous you know power at work for the sake of his people. The Jews were suckers for miracle workers because their ultimate value was power. What mattered most to them was was strength was being strong was was having power at their disposal to to accomplish or order their life however they desired their life to be so. Okay. In contrast, what mattered to the Greeks, we're told, was wisdom. And that word means practical know-how. So the Greeks were interested in understanding how things work because their ultimate value was success, accomplishment, achievement. So the Corinthians in Corinth wanted to be strong, right? They wanted to be successful. Paul looks into the church and he's very concerned about how they've begun to reflect the same values of the culture around them. And don't believe for, any, for a second it's any different today. I was thinking about this. Why do you think Lance Armstrong's Live Strong campaign is so compelling? And continues to be on the other side of you know, all the scandal that he's gone through over the last few months. We love the idea of this weak man beaten down by cancer who rallies himself and proves himself to be strong in the end. It is the closest thing we have to a cultural narrative going all the way back to the war of independence, right? When we were the little guys outmatched and outnumbered and yet we won, right? We conquered the unconquerable. We proved ourselves to be strong. It's our cultural identity. We are a... World superpower and scared to death to ever be anything other. Strength, success, right? We are just as enculturated as the Corinthians were, which is why the rest of what Paul says in these verses is such good news. Because you see the contrasting reality that Paul talks about in these verses. He calls it not the wisdom of this world, but in contrast, the wisdom of God, by which God is overthrowing. Destroying, thwarting the wisdom of the world. And you see that in verse 19. God is destroying worldly wisdom. He's, verse 20, making foolish the wisdom of the world. And to be clear, this is Paul's way of describing God bringing salvation. You understand? This is God bringing salvation to his people. In the gospel, God is breaking through our unreality to offer us true wisdom. He's destroying all of our ways of life, our priorities and practices and our human institutions based upon pride and greed and selfishness in order to lead us to, as Jonathan said, what the Bible calls abundant life. We need to be saved from the world's spiritual power. And in particular, right at this point, right here it's right here right and that is that God's wisdom this wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of the world being revealed in Jesus Christ it feels foolish the wisdom of God too often feels foolish and the world's foolishness feels like wisdom but the reality in verse 25 there Paul makes it explicitly clear that it is the foolishness of God that is wiser than man's wisdom and ultimately the weakness of God that is stronger than man's strength. And we need we need to be able to come out of this wisdom of the world mindset that we're in into what Paul says is the foolishness of God in order to experience true wisdom, true strength. And God, what we're told, has proven this once and for all in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's point number one. That's... That's why, why, you know, why we, why we need Jesus so much, okay? It's because we are trapped in this mindset Paul refers to as the wisdom of this, of this world that has no power to lead us to salvation and life. But the wisdom of God is breaking in in the person of Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, if you want to see the wisdom of God overthrowing the wisdom of this world, you see it most clearly in Christ crucified, verse 23, who is... And it's coming into the world, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you could hear Vicky almost get choked up when she read that. Right? The Christ crucified, Paul says. A stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so for Paul to put those two words together, Christ crucified. It was unprecedented and almost unbearable because that word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, this political and military Hero, right? That the Jews were waiting for who would come in God's name and God's power and conquer his enemies and rescue his people. And everybody agreed. All the scholars and teachers. That when he came, it would be in a show of strength and victory. So, a crucified Christ? A Messiah who lost? A Messiah who was defeated and weak? That, that phrase, Christ crucified, was a contradiction in terms. Completely upside down. And yet Paul looks at Jesus, Christ crucified, and he says, Behold the wisdom of God. So what's going on? I mean, think about the beginning of Jesus' life for a minute, okay? It's Christmas time, this is what we're supposed to do. Think about Christmas. When God came, how did he come? Not as a conquering hero. He came as a baby. A fugitive. Carpenter. I mean, think about, just think about this for a minute. The omnipotent, holy, omnipresent, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, wielding a hammer. Not a sword, not a spear, not a scepter, a hammer. And where was he born? In Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why did the wise men who traveled all the way from Persia go to Jerusalem in search of Jesus? They were looking for a king. And everyone knows where kings are born, right? They're born in palaces, of course. Not in barns. But not this king. And who attended his birth? Right? Who did God invite to welcome his son into the world? Not dignitaries and noblemen. The shepherds were there. The riffraff. Right, If you've already had a chance to catch Christmas Vacation on TV, the Uncle Eddie's of the world. Right, That's who was there. That's who got invited. But not only just the beginning of his life, think about the end of his life. There he is, right? There he is, Christ crucified, bloody, beaten, hanging on a cross, not sitting on a throne, being jeered at and mocked and spit upon, not lauded and praised, a crown of thorns upon his head, not a jeweled crown. His nakedness hailing his shame, not his glory, not his majesty. Dead, defeated, forsaken, abandoned. The power of God. The wisdom of God. Everything, everything about the beginning of Jesus' life And the end of his life is upside down. It's subversive. Christ crucified. The wisdom and the power of God. Uh, There's a movie out in theaters now called The Life of P. And it's P, not Pi, because the the boy's name is p And he gets made fun of because of what the word sounds like. So The Life of P... And and the trailers only show a boy in a raft with a tiger. But if, if you've seen the movie, you may know. I have not seen it yet. I don't know if they get into all this. But I read the book years ago. And the story begins with this boy named P living in Pondicherry, India. And he's troubled as a young man. Incredibly sensitive to spiritual realities. But he can't figure out what he believes. So being in India, he grows up as a Hindu and loves the portrayal of the Hindu gods as powerful beings who demand obedience and sacrifice. But he's not completely satisfied. So he goes and he tries Islam for a while. Okay, but he's not, again, not completely satisfied there either. So when he's 13 years old, as the story goes, he meets a Catholic priest who begins to tell him about Jesus. And at first he says, it's fascinating, I think the guy who wrote the book gets it absolutely right. He says, what drew, him, what drew P into, Christian, into Christianity was his disbelief. And that is how utterly upside down the whole thing was. And here I'm going to quote him at length. Just hang with me because I know this is hard. Here are his words, this, this boy, this 13-year-old boy. What? Humanity sins, but it's God's son who pays the price? Now, his, his father owns a zoo. You have to understand that part of the story. He says, I tried to imagine father saying to me, Peaceing, a lion slipped into the llama pen today and killed two llamas. Yesterday, one killed a black buck. Last week, two of them ate a camel. Something must be done. I have decided the only way the lions can atone for their sins is if I feed you to them. (laughs) He says, yes, Father, that would be the right and logical thing to do. Give me a moment to wash up. Hallelujah, my son. Hallelujah, Father. He says, what a downright weird story. What peculiar psychology. I mean, it's too much for him. He goes away from his conversation with the priest, but can 't stop thinking about the claims of Christianity, so he goes on. He says that a God should put up with adversity. I could understand the God of hinduism the gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. Adversity yes, reversals of fortune, yes, treachery, yes, but humiliation, death i couldn 't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped, whipped, mocked dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. I've never heard of a Hindu god dying. Then he begins to meditate on all the stories where the Hindu gods appear in human likeness. And what he realizes in every story, they eventually throw off, they, they appear as humans, but eventually they throw off their humanity and reveal themselves as they truly are. In other words, their humanity was just a was just a disguise. What was true of them was their cosmic greatness, their power, and their might. And so the boy says... This is God as God should be, with shine and power and might, such as can rescue and save and put down evil. But this son, Jesus, this son, on the other hand, who goes hungry, who suffers thirst, who is sad, who is anxious, who is heckled and harassed, who has to put up with the followers who don't get it, and opponents who... Who don't respect him. What kind of a God is that? It's God on too human a scale. That's what. He goes on. There are miracles. Yes. Mostly of a medical nature. At best the storm is tempered. Water is briefly walked upon. If that is magic. It is minor magic. On the order of card tricks. Any Hindu God can do a hundred times better. He says I'll stick to my Krishna. Thank you very much. I find his divinity utterly compelling. You can keep your sweaty chatty son to yourself. And this part of the story ends with P describing his disbelief and his annoyance. He literally says, "I, I was annoyed. And it was the weakness and the foolishness of Christ that bothered him so much. And yet he ends this part of the story by saying, I couldn't get him out of my head. The more he bothered me, the less I could forget him. And the more I learned about him, the less I wanted to leave him. It's a great illustration. Read the book, see the movie. But what I want you to see is... The truth is, what Christians claim to be true of God is absolute foolishness. A baby, crying for his mother's milk, wrapped tightly against the cold in a barn in an out-of-the-way corner of the earth. The maker of heaven and earth. The one who spoke stars into existence, who breathe the breath of life into the woman who gave birth to him. Very God of very God. Okay? That's craziness. But it's the truth we celebrate at Christmas. And what you see is, is in Jesus Christ, God's wisdom, weakness, not strength, foolishness, not success, God's wisdom It's breaking in. It's wisdom through the lens of Christmas. It's wisdom with the cross at the center that stands in utter contradiction to the wisdom of this world. But why? Why Christ crucified? Why not Christ enthroned? And that's the question that haunts this young man P in the story I told you about. He keeps asking the priest he's been interviewing for an answer and the only answer the priest gives him is love. See, God in Jesus Christ is overthrowing human pride and selfishness in order to heal the world of sin and death through humility and love. I mean, what's wrong with the world? What is it that's made such a mess of things? The Bible says explicitly it is our desire for power and success. It is our desire to play God, to be like God, to be clothed in God's power and authority that screwed things up so badly. And therefore, in order to rescue us and undo the curse of sin, God had to become like us. He had to clothe himself in our weakness. The problem is human pride. It's wanting to be strong and successful. Wanting to be exalted above others. wanting wanting, Human beings wanting to be the most high. And therefore, the only solution is love and humility. The anti-pride. The most high becoming the most low. This complete reversal, see? So lastly, and I need to come to a finish. Our response, excuse me, what should our response be? And the answer, if I could just be very, very frank and very straightforward and very quick, the answer is conversion. You want to know what the response is? There has to be a conversion. We have to become foolish. We have to embrace what we once thought of as foolishness, as wisdom. We have to embrace weakness as strength. That's the only way to become a Christian. It's the, only way, it's the only way you can ever become a Christian, and it's the only way that you can live as a Christian. It requires a conversion, a radical reorientation of your entire life around the truth of the gospel of Christ crucified. Paul says later in Corinthians, we have become fools For Christ's sake. And by that he meant. That he embraced the weakness and foolishness of the cross. As his value system and his way of life. Now when I use the word conversion. I mean ultimately. God must come. And do a work in your heart. Because you see in the very first verse. Verse 18. Paul says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. So what he means by that is non-Christian people. People people who, don't, who haven't come to faith in Christ yet, they look at the cross and they say, you know, how tragic, how sad, how stupid, how wasteful. They look at the cross and they see defeat and weakness and folly, but the Christian is the person who has experienced a supernatural change of heart and perspective, and so they look at the cross and they say, how beautiful, how glorious. They look at the cross and see glory and power and wisdom and it's the same contrast later. In verses 23 and 24, Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but, look, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That word called refers to the internal work of the Spirit, this conversion, this radical reorientation of your entire life around the truth claims of the gospel, which leads you to embrace the weakness and foolishness of the cross as your value system and way of life. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. Not the wisdom of the world with Christian clothes on. It's a radically subversive, contradictory way of life. The way of the cross as opposed to the course of this world. So how do you know? Let me finish. How do you know if you've experienced this kind of conversion? Let me ask you two questions. And then I'm done. Two questions. Question number one. Do you know, do you know that you cannot save yourself by being strong or by being successful? See, that's what the Corinthians believed, and it's what most people believe. But that's not the solution. That's the problem, remember? That's what's wrecked the whole thing to begin with. Humanity's pride and ambition and, and selfishness, the want to be strong, not to be weak, to win, not to lose. Paul preached Christ crucified, he said, a stumbling block there, verse twenty three. Scandalon, a scandal. I mean, the cross is scandalous. Christmas is scandalous. Elsewhere Paul says it's a it's an offense. There's something offensive about the Jesus of Christmas in the cross. The gospel is offensive because it stands against every self salvation project. And it's quite honestly too much for some people. To deal with, because, you see, the message of the gospel is you don't become a Christian by being strong. You become a Christian by admitting you're weak and you need help. You don't become a Christian after you've proven to be successful. You become a Christian by admitting you're a failure, you're a wreck, you're a scallywag. Right? Take the sentence with a grain of salt and know what I mean. There's no such thing as a strong Christian. That's as much a contradiction in terms as Christ crucified. So do you know? Do you know that you cannot save yourself by being moral or righteous or strong or successful? Are you still trying to be? Are you still trying to hold up your public image? But second application. Do you know? Do you know? Have you, have you, Submitted to, do you know that the gospel roadmap to joy is a life of humility and love? Humility in the place of power, love in the place of success. And this is exactly what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is saying when it says that the God of heaven became nothing. I mean, have you, this word foolishness, by the way, is the word moron. It literally means moron. I mean, God became nothing in Philippians 2. Have you ever heard of anything so moronic? Have you ever seen anything so beautiful? And yet what Paul says is that we are to have the mind of Christ, which means that we, as his people, are meant to imitate him, to do what he did in the way that he from on high came down, that we are to come down and to live a life of humility and love, not because it's what you know we have to do, in order uh, for God to love us and accept us, but because it is the gospel roadmap to a life of joy. Do you know that? Do you know that you cannot save yourself by being strong or successful? Do you know that the gospel roadmap to a life of joy is a life of humility and love? If so, chances are you've had an experience with grace. If not, pray that God continues to work on you to reveal these things to you, so that he might overthrow the wisdom of the world in your life and lead you to the wisdom of God, which is life everlasting. Let's pray. Can we do that as we come to the table this morning? Heavenly Father, so much for us to think about and consider in these verses. And so we pray now as we come to this table together to celebrate this meal, which you and your great wisdom and your lavish generosity have left for us to do, that we might be strengthened in our faith, in our commitment, to follow you, would you come now as we gather around this table to eat this meal and teach us the way of wisdom and lead us in the way of the cross, that we might be a people that glorifies your name and bears fruit, a people full of beautiful works, not reflecting back to the culture we live in, its priorities and values, but like a window that reveals a different way, that many may come and see, and turn from their sin and put their faith in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Every time we celebrate communion, at this point uh, we ask that you would stand, and in response to the Word of God uh, that's been preached, we offer this affirmation of the faith. So please stand with me. Again, this is your this is your response, your verbal assent and response to. Uh, the, the scriptures being proclaimed this morning. So I ask, Christian, in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? Let's recite this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he descended into. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living. The dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On the night before Jesus was to be crucified, he gathered in in a, a room with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, and the atmosphere had to be ripe with expectation of what his kingship was going to look like. And even to the last hours, many of his disciples were arguing even at the Last Supper over who would have the place of greatest honor in his kingdom. And yet what Jesus revealed to be true of himself in the meal, he celebrated with his disciples on that night, and with the meal he commands us to celebrate with one another on an ongoing basis until his return, is that he is a king unlike any other king. A king who came not to be served, but to serve. A king who came not to ascend to a throne from where he would rule, but one who left a throne and took a cross that he might suffer and die to save us from our sins. This meal is put in the middle of our life together as a body of people to remind us uh, of the true nature of wisdom, that we are a people who do not live our lives according to the dictates of the wisdom of this world, but we are those who belong to a different story, who order our life according to a different wisdom, the wisdom of God in Christ crucified. And so this meal has great spiritual import for us as a people this morning as we struggle, as we struggle with the seeming foolishness of the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the foolishness of the world, and yet knowing that it is ultimately the foolishness of God that proves wise and, the, and the, the weakness of God that proves strong, and needing to believe and have faith to live into that reality, this meal is an aid to the faith we need to live the life we're called to live in obedience to our Savior's commands. I would remind you as you come, a couple of, a couple of just points of, of self-examination. This is a meal uh, celebrated by all those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, what we would say is what you need is not this bread and this cup. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him and then talk to me or Jonathan, one of our pastors or elders. And once you've settled that issue, then we invite you next month to come back uh, and take uh, this meal. But for right now, come to Jesus. But refrain from coming to this. But secondly, if this is a meal where we celebrate reconciliation being made on our behalf by Jesus Christ and his suffering and death for us, it would be the epitome of contradiction for us to come and to exult and celebrate all that he has done for us in reconciling us to the Father while not being reconciled to one another. And so if there's need for reconciliation in your personal life, the scripture we believe is very clear when it says go from the altar, be reconciled to your brother, and once that work is done, come back. We'll celebrate this meal actually next week again. If there's work that you need to do, interpersonally in relationships. Go and make that right, and then come back so that you refrain from eating and drinking in an unworthy manner that brings judgment. Uh, The way we do this is we ask that you come forward down the center aisle. There will be four stations here at the front. Take the cup and the bread back to your seat. Once everybody's been served, we will eat uh, together. Okay? (laughs) This, this is the wisdom and the power of God. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. After supper, he took the cup and giving it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Take, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to come to his table. And if you're helping me serve this morning, if you would come forward, I'd appreciate that. Heavenly Father...
0: As we, your people, gather around
1: your table now, form us, we pray, as a people with a truly alternate mode of wisdom and way of life. Uh, we come and we take this meal not to celebrate our own strength, but to proclaim and confess our weakness into glory and to glory in the strength that you have provided for us. Lord Jesus, you are a savior of sinners, not the righteous. But that is a hard truth for our hearts to hold on to. And so we pray that as we come that you would help us encourage our faith uh, and, and, and increase our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come as you fill in. The only way to embrace the foolishness and the weakness of the cross is to know uh, that there is a powerful God who promises to be with you and to work on your behalf. That is the promise of the benediction. And so receive the benediction and then go live in faith uh, in the way of the cross and not the way of the wisdom of this world, uh, so that your life may be full of beautiful works that shine like stars in the darkness. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.